Eleven years ago, I was able to take a, um, a mission team to uh, Ukraine uh, to do an a English as a Second Language camp. And uh, Brian, Brian Cox, where are you? Brian's around here somewhere. I just saw him earlier. He was a ninth grader on that trip, and uh, he's married now. Kyle would be in the same boat. He was on that trip as well. And uh, it was a really cool trip. We, we basically went uh, to a little city outside of Kiev, and these different student pastors from all over the country came and brought students to this camp. And um, a lot of those students were just un- unchurched kids. But in that process, I was able to meet these different young leaders, Ukrainian church leaders. Most of them had these ties to Kiev Baptist Theological uh, Seminary and then the organization that I had a tie to, Youth Ministry International. And they're just some really great young leaders. And uh, 2011, like that's back then, you added everybody you met, you added as a friend on Facebook. And so, you know, I've been friends with friends with these guys since 2011. There's about a dozen of them. And man, some of them have ended up writing for for Gospel Coalition, different things. I mean, there there's there's some some legit young guys in here. And so, 150 days ago. When Russia invaded Ukraine, um, I kind of got to see the, the war through their social media and see the things that happened. And man, these guys were just so brave. Um, you know, being young men and, and having congregations, a lot of those guys, church planters now, um, they, they were taking every day and shuttling uh, women and children out. They were getting supplies and they were coming back in. But do you know what they did on Sundays? They preached to their congregations. And it was wild to see. And some of those times, some of those guys were in cities that were just actively under siege. And they would show up and there'd be one or two people that they were preaching to. And other times, uh, the, the, the wall, it would just be packed, wall to wall. People coming to church to hear the gospel. And then just a few weeks ago, I mean the war's still going on. Just a few weeks ago, Misha um, posted some, some pictures and video on Facebook of taking their students to camp in the middle of a war. It was right at the same time that our kids were at camp. And I was just, it made me cry. It just kind of made me think through, like, would we, have, would we do that? Or would we be hit up in a, in, in a hole? I mean, it was like, this is part of life and what's going on, and so we're going to invest and disciple in the next generation. He would, he would take and he would post pictures all along the way of like, this is his apartment before, and this is his apartment now with a hole in it, right? And this is the park in town where he and his wife got married, and it's destroyed. Like, there's the picture of it destroyed. And yet, they've just, keep, they've just kept being faithful in the midst of war. I know of, um, I know of another ministry that I'm, I'm connected to that, that has some church plants in Ukraine and these and in, and in Poland, both places. And, and these ladies in the churches are making bulletproof vests for soldiers. They're gathering at the church and they're, they're making bulletproof vests. And they've got a pocket in them and they're putting a New Testament Bible in every one of the, the bulletproof vests and give it to them. That just seems so foreign to us, doesn't it? Like we are a country that has in a lot of ways not known war. We talked about in our, in our first sermon series in the book of Judges that that greatest generation, um, 
the World War II generation, like the last real generation to know uh, uh, out front war, they're, they're dying. And so since then, it's been, been Vietnam and Desert Storm and then the War on Terror. And, and those have just, in some ways, been invisible to us. They've been invisible wars where we've not known who the enemy was. And so it hasn't really necessarily like changed for a lot of us our course of life. There's days and days and days that have gone by that we as Americans don't have to think about war. The last 10 years, we've seen kind of this trend within Christianity that anytime you bring up war in the Bible, people get really uncomfortable. When you, you bring up something like the book of Joshua, where you talk about the conquest, uh, people are like, man, how could a good God do that? Because we know, we do not know the realities of war. We've not had to deal with it. But this is what the New Testament Christians should, should realize. The Old Testament is full of pictures of, of, of war. War was a, a, a way of, of life. The New Testament Christian should know that Jesus has fought the war. And that Jesus says that, th that there is war. That the war isn't against flesh and, and blood. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 um, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly places. So we've lived our life like there's invisible wars going on, and the truth is there's an invisible war going, around, uh, going on around us, and we walk around half the time oblivious to it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to open up the Bible today, the book of Joshua, chapter 4 and 5, and we're going to see yet another war. And if you were with us back in the, back in the spring of the year, we went through the book of Joshua, you'll see uh, God's continual blessing and hand up upon Israel in his mercy and grace. You'll see the bigger overarching piece of this. But today I would just challenge you as we, we talk about war, and there's, a, there's some gruesome, weird verses. I warned y'all last week, like, Judges kind of jacked up it's kind of it's kind of weird in places and it just gets worse it doesn't get better like we're going to encounter some of those today but i want you to see god's gracious mighty saving hand in it remember this is this is merely descriptive it's not prescriptive right i mean we're, no one's telling you to do what happens in this text today uh but it is an example of of god's character and god's kindness that we're going to see in this text. So as we approach this text today, here's the big truth that I want us to walk away with. That I, I want us to walk away today realizing this big truth. That salvation can only be found in God. It's coming from God alone. It doesn't come from man. It's no ruler or leader. It's not a, a, a president or a king. It comes from God. Salvation can only be found in God. For sure can't be found in yourself. You cannot save yourself. We're, we see that over and over in scripture that we are not able to save ourselves. So, uh, introducing us to Judges number, uh, literally this is the fourth and fifth judge in, in the, the book of Judges and also chapters 4 and 5. Starting in chapter 4 verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was 
Sisera, uh, who lived in Heresh, Hezum, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And so what we see here in the text is that we've got 20 years of oppression. It's been 20 years since Ehud died. And now another king has come in past Eglon. That was the king who was oppressing that Ehud delivered them from. And you've got this, this king, Jabin, and his commander, who's like the real secret sauce here. He's his silver bullet. He's the one uh, who's mighty in battle. 900 chariots of, of iron. He had, he had tools of war. He had weapons of war. And the Israelites did not have weapons of war. They, they had very little. So uh, they were able to oppress them. And so notice what they did. And here's my big idea. Is that when you're in distress, cry to the Lord for help. Verse 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And this is where I think there's, there's an application for us to be had here. When you are in distress, you cry to the Lord for help. So what's, what's said here, I, I, I should meant to know earlier that we're in chapters 4 and 5. 4 is kind of the narrative of what goes on. Chapter 5 is a song. And it is a song. It's the only song in the book of, of Judges. It's, it's the only, uh, I mean, there's, there's poetry, there's prose. It's, it's a song. It's the only one there. It actually mimics um, the, the, the book of the Exodus in, in chapters 14 and 15. And in 15 you see a song. And so it's kind of, it's kind of an echo of God's continued work. Even, even some of the story and what God does to save his people is a, is a continued echo of, of what he's done and what we see in Exodus 14 and 15. And really it goes all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3. And so um, here... The people are oppressed. They've been oppressed. For 20 years they've been oppressed. And finally, they cry out to God for help. Last week I talked about this cycle that, that happens with Israel. Israel literally means struggles with God. They wrestle with God. They fight with God. We do that. We struggle with God. We go through these same sin cycles that where we're in communion with God. And then we... we um, count in the power of our own flesh and think we can do things on our own and we end up in a place of distress. Our, our disobedience leads to disaster and that disaster leads to distress. And in our distress, we cry out to God and in the crying out, uh, crying out to God, he answers our prayers and he brings us back into communion with him. And so here they are. They cry out to the Lord for help. This was the solution. The Lord would answer their cry to help. But it took forever. It took 20 years for them to cry out. Now, I would just show you, and I, I, would, I would show you that uh, over and over in Scripture, we see that our natural bend to distress is grumbling and complaining. Our natural bent to discomfort is, is to, well, A, you start try to fix it in the power of yourself. And, man, I, I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to anyone. That you grumble and you complain. You groan. And then you finally get to the, 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 the end of your wit. You get to the end of your rope where you're like, I can't do this anymore. And you cry out to God. When, in fact, you could have cried out to God in the beginning. And this is what we see 
over and over in Israel's history that they, they groan and they complain and they gripe rather than cried out to God. And so what we should take away from that is, is when something happens that we should cry out to the Lord for help. We should realize, I can't do this. The Lord can. You know, I often say, if not in the power of the Holy Spirit, then in the power of who? Right? And the answer to that is yourself. And that's a bad answer. You don't want to, to, to things to happen in the power of yourself. Because God can do far more than we can. We can ever ask, imagine, or think. And so we want to depend on God to be the one who moves and works. So when we're in distress... The answer is crying to the Lord for help. It's getting on, it's humbling ourselves before the Lord and getting on our knees and asking the Lord to do it. Prayer is the answer, not our own power. Now, verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of uh, Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. All right, so remember, we're in, a, in the book of Judges, and we're between, right? So in, in the beginning, God was the, the, the leader of Israel, and he raised up Moses and Joshua, and, and they followed him. But the people, in their groaning and moaning, end up saying, hey, we want a king like all those surrounding people. And he gives them Saul. Saul's the first king. You get Saul, David, Solomon, and it goes downhill from there. This is the in-between. And so the leaders, there is no Moses, there is no Joshua. Joshua has died. He uses judges. God raises up these judges. And these judges are, um, they're not appointed by man, but God brings them up and people end up depending on them. They're, they're leaders because people are following them. That's how you know if you're a leader, if people are following you. And that is what the Lord has done. So, um, De Deborah, we see actually from five, we see that she's a mother, that she's a like motherly type, discernment wise, and could basically help um, other is other Israelites uh, settle arguments. Mom's in the room. Some of you probably feel like that's your job. Some of the time is to settle arguments amongst your children. Uh, do we have any moms who feel like that's your job? See, you guys are more honest than the first service. You're already making it better because the moms in the first service wouldn't acknowledge that. They were like, no, our kids never fight. No, your kid, right? That's what, that's what moms do. Um, moms settle arguments between kids. And you're like, just put the stupid socks on. It doesn't matter who they are. <laughs> anyway, um, not in our house. Separate socks. The boys ain't wearing each other's socks. It's easy. It's easy to distinguish. Anyway, um, this is what she does. So she's sitting there in in. Judgment, she's a judge, she's helping discern what's going on. In a lot of ways, she's bringing people and turning them towards godliness. What's the godly answer? What's the, the answer that pleases the Lord? So verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Adbanom, from Kadesh Naphtali. And so that's showing the region in which they're from, okay? So remember, uh, you've got, in, in Joshua, they go and they settle the different areas. And so you're, they're, they're showing you the region and the tribe in which they belong to, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Caesarea, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. 
So Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So here's my next big idea. And it's this. Where God speaks clearly, obey courageously. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, that was in a sermon two weeks ago. And I mentioned it last week. The exact same point, right? Where God speaks clearly, obey courageously. Now, I pointed out the first time I said that, that the Bible, in the Bible, God speaks clearly. It is clear to see where God speaks in the Bible and where God speaks clearly in his word. And his word is clear. So I'm not saying there's, I'm not saying by that saying, oh, there's, there's this gray areas. I'm saying, no, the Lord speaks clearly through his word. Uh, the word spoke clearly both to Barak and Deborah here. Where God speaks clearly, we need to obey courageously. And we look at his actions. Does that seem like courage to you? If you go, I'll go. If you don't go, I ain't going. When I was in middle school, I, I, this, this thing would happen at the, in, in the lunchroom. And it, all, it just, I, I couldn't figure it out. And then I don't know it now. It's been a mystery all my life since middle school. Sitting at lunch, one girl whispers over, another girl whispers over, and next thing you know, every girl off the table gets up and goes to the bathroom at the same time. You're like, wait, wait a second. Y'all all gotta go? How's that, how's that, how's that work? That every, no, you, you, you can't, it's, it's scary to go. As a middle school girl, it's scary to go to the bathroom by yourself. You, there's, there's, I don't know, comfort in community. I, I, I don't know. So I, I guess in some ways, Barack was like a middle school girl, right? He just could, he wasn't going to go by, by himself. I think we're all like middle school girls in a lot of ways. Uh, we're not going to do it by ourselves. We're not, we're not willing to obey by our, ourselves. We, we, we need other people to do it, do it with us. And so there's, there's two truths that I want us to see right here. It's easier to follow God together than alone. It's easier to follow God in community. It's easier to be brave when you can look and know that you are shoulder to shoulder in the battle of life with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a beautiful truth in that. That is why, I mean, that is why God gives us the church. When we look at the book of Acts, and we see in Acts chapter 2 and beyond, we see that they're living life in community, not in isolation. That they are better together. I promise you, like if you're sitting in a situation and you get the diagnosis that something is wrong with you, you have cancer, you want the church family there. When you go through the loss of somebody, you want the church family there. there there's never really an example in the New Testament that shows that the Christian gets to live in isolation, that the Christian should fight the battle alone. There's, there's, no, there's no examples of, of that. We, we are better together. As, as, a, as a church... We can do far more together for the sake of the, the kingdom of God, for our community around us, than we can apart. We're, we're better together. The Lord gives us gifts to use, and, and we see those gifts, and we see those gifts used for each other. And so the, the first reality I would just show you is that we, we really are able to be more courageous and, and more bold when we do this together. It's easier to follow God together than alone. But here's the second truth. Is that we need to be willing to do what God calls us to do, no matter if anybody else does it or not. 
There, there's, there's, a, there's a certain element that we see in Scripture that, like, if, if I'm the only one who's going to stand up and proclaim Christ, I have to be bold enough to be, I'm the only one who's going to stand up and proclaim Christ. You, you need that same attitude. Like, if, if you're going to follow the Lord no matter what anyone else does, because you're not following after men, you're following the Lord. So, so the second truth is, if I'm the only one who's going to follow the Lord, if I'm the only one who's going to obey courageously, I'm going to be the only one who obeys courageously. Now, the truth is, we don't, I, don't, I don't want you to be the only one. I don't want to be the only one. I want us to go together. For us to go together, it takes leaders. We pray all the time that the Lord would raise up leaders in our church. We need leaders in our church who, will, who will, are willing to go, are willing to, to put themselves out there. This, this past week, uh, we had that mission team here, um, and they had been working really hard. They're an excellent mission team, and they had been getting after it, and so we were going to reward them a little bit. We want to take them swimming. And so we went up, to, up, the, up the Poudre Canyon, and we went to Picnic Rock. And, uh, you know, um, they're up there, and they all kind of beat me to the water, and they're, they're standing there. And the truth is, I'd never been to Picnic Rock before. I'd never even been in the, the, the river right there. I, I had driven by it a bunch, but I hadn't been right there. And so they're all just kind of like standing in it, looking what to do. And I think, well, I guess I'm going to get wet. And I want them to play in the water, so I just take off out in the water. And I get out there, and I'm like, you know, I have to be willing. Like, I got to look stupid. Because the river rocks make you look stupid. Because you just try to walk in there. You know what happens. You're falling all over the place and in front of people. And you just, you, as a leader, you just got to be willing to look stupid. I get out there. I get in the water. I start floating down. About 100 yards down, I'm wishing, like, I wish I could tell them not to follow me. Because this was not the greatest idea. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of, this kind of hurts a little bit. Um, anyway, we found fun in it. The students got in. And they had an absolute blast. They did. They had an absolute blast playing in the water. It just took leadership. And I got, out, I got out and told the boys, I said, that's often leadership. You just have to be willing to go first and to look stupid doing it. Listen, this is where we have to be. That no matter what God says, we read his word, and the, less, that the rest of the world looks at it and goes, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You've got to be willing to look dumb. You've got to be willing to go, no. The Lord knows. The Lord is better. The Lord is wiser uh, than, than the world. The, the, the Lord makes them look foolish. And so they can say, I'm going to look a fool, but I'm going to follow the Lord looking like a fool. It's all right. I'm willing to follow the Lord. I'm willing to obey courageously. Maybe it's a situation. I mean, I could, I could, I could apply this to a uh, hundred examples in our kind of in our culture where culture disagrees with the Bible. But let's just say it's, let's just say it's, how you treat someone who hates you or someone who persecutes you. Because the Bible is very clear. What do you do to somebody who hates you? Somebody who persecutes you? You, you love them. You pray for them. Right? It's, it's very, very clear. So um, maybe, maybe you have somebody who's, who's come after you, who's been a, a bully to you, who at, at work has done you wrong, and your family's like, oh, you ought to have them fired. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. You ought to sue them. And your response is, no, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to show them kindness. I'm going to show them mercy. The Bible speaks clearly. I'm going to obey courageously. And when you do that, you get to watch the, work, the, the Lord work and, and move. Verse 9. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Now, 
I just want to point out that she nails this prophetic word here. She prophesies right here and she nails it. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his hills and Deborah went up with him. Now, um, you see these are Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are the two tribes. Um, we see from the, the song, this is about 40,000 people. So one-fourth of them, the men, get up and they, they, they go. So you've got to think this is most of the men, if not all of the men, get up. And Deborah goes with them. So here's my next big idea, is that we should seek to glorify God and not ourselves. Now, I think when she says this, when she, when she points this out, like, you're not going to get the glory for this. You're not going to be the superhero of the battle here. I think, had he been like, all right, I got this fight. Let's go up in battle. Let's go. Roar. Charge forward. That, that he could have he gone down to some, some battle, you know, war hero legend guy, right? Superhero form. But the fact that he, he said to Deborah, how oh, cool if you'll go. But if you're going, I ain't going, shows you that he wasn't, she says, you're not going to get the glory for this. He seemed to be okay with that because he didn't like back up and go, never mind, you stay here, I'll go do it by myself. I'll go lead out in it. He, he, he didn't seem to care. It didn't seem like, you know what, I don't, I don't necessarily need the glory. I want to be free, I want our people to be free of oppression. But we don't know that was his motive, but that would be the right motive. Here's what I would show you in this big idea, is that we should seek to glorify God and not our, ourselves, because we see it throughout Scripture. We see that God's glory matters, and that we as humans want glory. We have this, this bend and this bent within our sinful nature to want the glory, but we can't handle glory. It destroys us. Personal glory is a terrible goal. I want you to know that. It is unfulfilling. If you, if you take and you look at the, 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 the stars in our world, the, 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 the people in our world who uh, arrive at stardom and they, they go and they're about their glory, they end up being miserable and they end up falling apart where their lives are, are wrecked so often. We can't handle glory. We get so puffed up and so built up that it brings us, our arrogance brings us to destruction. Personal Glory is a terrible goal that turns into a false god. I mean, it becomes the thing that we're enslaved to, that we work for, that we work to. And so here, um, her warning to him, I think, is a good warning to us. We don't want the glory. We want God to get the glory. We're not built for glory. God is built for glory. We, we, when we are glorified, it ends up tearing us down rather than building us up. However, we see in Scripture that, that God is the only one worthy of glory and that God can handle the glory. At our church, our mission statement is this, that we want to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ, that we want God to get the glory and no one else. Now, verse 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. And so these verses are important. They're going to tie together for us what's about to happen. So the, the Kenites had separated 
they're, they're not Israelites, but they are kin to Moses. So they're relatives of Israel. They're cousins of Israel, if you will. And they had settled in this area. They had, they had settled, they had built, built their camps, their, their homes, essentially, there. When Caesarea, verse 12, was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Caesarea called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harish Hajom to the river of Kushan. And Deborah said to Barak, here she goes again, and she's like in touch with the Lord, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Caesarea got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Hajom, and all the army of Caesarea fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Here's my next big idea. That God goes before his people and fights for them. You're like, hey, I've heard that before. Yes, you have. In the book of Joshua. We were in the book of Joshua 10 weeks. And over and over and over in the book of Joshua, we see this. That God is before them. God goes before them. That God is with them. That God is in them. That God moves and works on behalf of his people. That he goes and he fights for them. Notice the language that she uses. She says, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. So she's showing the Lord's sovereign hand. Uh, he's the one fighting the battle. He's giving them into your hand. Does the Lord not go out before you? Right? The Lord goes before them and fights for them. And then it shows that it's the Lord that, that routed Sisera and his army to them. Now we see, this is what we see in Chapter 5 in the song. We get a lot more detail in the song of what happens. And what happens is they're along, going along the Kashan, the river. And this is not like you think Jordan River. You think Big River they have to cross. This is much, a much smaller river. And they're at Kashan. And it rains. And it floods. And those 900 chariots that were this mighty force to be reckoned with got stuck in the mud. That's what happens. They get stuck. The Lord uses water to take out the chariots to stick them again. Now, haven't we heard that before? Exodus chapters 14 and 15, that's what happens. This again, this is echoing that God goes before them and God fights for them. It's showing yet again uh, this picture that the Lord moves and works on behalf of their people. And so the Lord, it, it's not, you know, Barak has no, no power to call down rains from heaven to make it wash out to wash out the chariots no, the Lord does it this is the Lord's plan and so the Lord goes before him and he fights for them and I would just have you note this that that the Lord still fights for his people today the Lord still goes before his people today in the New Testament we see that that ultimately God went before us in sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. And he's, he's the one who has been at war with sin and Satan and the Lord fights for us in it. But I would also point out that the Lord is in the details of your life. That in your job, with your, 
uh, kids, with your spouse, with your, within your home, within your church, that in all the different details of their life, that the Lord is also going before you and fighting for you, that he's moving and working on your behalf, that God does that for his, his people. God moves on our behalf. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenanite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazar and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skim of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed the Jabin, king of Canaan. I told y'all, this book is jacked up. And it only gets worse. I mean, that is, I mean last week, we were, we were a, a knife stuck in a fat king's belly with feces spilling out. This week, it's a, it's, a, it's a tent peg drove through a temple. Here's the big idea that I want you to see, is that God will subject everything to his rule and reign. God will subject everything and everybody to his rule and reign. So Sarah was the reason that Jabin had been able to oppress the Israelites. He, he was the warrior that who allowed them to be oppressed. He was the one who caused their distress. And, and the Lord, as he's fighting for Israel, he's the one who directs their paths to Kishon at the time that Barak would intercept them. And he's the one who calls the rains to come. He's the one who calls the chariots to get stuck. And, and Sisera, not being a bold leader, not being courageous, he lets his men fight the battle while he flees. And here he is, scared of this army, and he goes into what he thinks is an ally's tent. And those details are important because they had a good relationship, but not realizing that, that they were, in fact, cousins to the Israelites. She was more of a frenemy than an ally. That he's able to get there in that rug, and she, the, the detail, he asked for water, she gave him milk. He fell asleep. And she takes a tent peg and she drives it in his temple and kills him. It is a woman who kills him. I, I would point out here that in, in a day where women were not given positions of authority or leadership, the Lord raised up Deborah the judge and through the hands of a woman, he, he steered Israel. He led Israel and then in, in defeat, it wasn't the mighty army, but a, a, a woman who was brave enough to stop this terrorist of a man. She was, she, she was able, and it's a, it's a weird story. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird thing. Remember, um, this is merely description, right? This is, this is not prescription, so 
don't don't do that to anybody. All right, this is this is not something you do. This is this is describing an event that happened in the Bible. Um, it's it's the Lord's sovereign hand that the Lord is 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 moving and working in through these unlikely circumstances. That the Lord is subjecting all things unto Himself to His rule and His reign. The Bible teaches us that that the King's heart is bound up, um, and that the Lord directs it where He will, like it's a river. That the Lord is sovereign over all. That there is only one sovereign ruler, and it is and it is God Himself. It is it is Jesus sitting on His throne that has the rule and reign, and He is bringing everything unto himself. And so, because the people of Israel cried out in their distress, this is the hand of God moving. God is at work here, and we see a a beautiful picture in, in this weird, weird story of God's provision for safety and God subjecting everything to his rule and to his reign. We see God caring for his people. We see God saving his people. This is a story of salvation. That because of the fall of Sisera, they're able to go up against Jabin, the king of Canaan. And they're able to to stop the oppression. And they're able to be saved. And so we look at the story and we go, man, you see... You see, this this mighty warrior in battle, we see that he was just merely a man. And it was a woman with a tent peg who was able to kill him. But then we look to Jesus. Jesus was not nearly a man. Just as she, she took that tent peg and she drove it through his temple, so the soldiers took nails and they drove them through Jesus' hands and his feet and they nailed him to a cross. They hung him on the cross to crucify him, to kill him. They killed him. They put him in the tomb, proving he was God. On the third day, Jesus rose again. Jesus rose from the dead. Unlike any other king or commander who had ever been killed, their death was final uh, Jesus' death, the only thing that was final in Jesus' death was nailing sin to the cross. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, proving that he is Lord. And just as he's subjecting everything to his rule and his, his reign in the Old Testament, we see that that come to finality in Jesus, that Jesus was proving uh, God to be God, that God was all-powerful. And in the New Testament, we see that God tells us, Jesus tells us to, to follow him, to subject ourselves to him, to make him Lord of our lives, to surrender to, 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 to him, to subject ourselves to his rule and his reign. Just as God used the judges... To save the people through Deborah and Barak. So God sent Jesus to save us. And so today if you're in the room and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. This is, a, this is maybe a weird story to walk away from and go, you know what? I heard the story of Jael and Deborah and Barak and, and God's, God's saving of his, his people through these judges. And I believe in the Lord Jesus And I want to be saved today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead. 
and be saved. Here's the next thing I want to show you. You go to chapter 5, and what you get is a song. After war, they sang this song. The proper response to salvation is worship. The right response to salvation is worship. We, we saw it in Exodus chapter 15. We see it in Judges 5. You see it at other places throughout the, the Old Testament. You go to the, the book of Psalms, and literally there's 150 of them that, that are responses of worship to God's salvation. You get to the New Testament church, and what do they do? But they sing. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, sing psalms and hymns with spiritual uh, spirit and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart towards God. So today, church, our response ought to be that of worship. We often say at our church that, that worship is taking your mind's attention and your heart's affection and placing it on the Lord for who he is and what he's done. That, that, that's what worship is. It's crying out in thanksgiving and adoration of who God is. So today... My invitation to you is that if you do not know Christ, to place your faith and trust in him. And if you do know Christ, let's sing out now with a right response to salvation by worship. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that every bit of it, every story, gives us truth about you, shows us your character, shows us that you are mighty to save, that you love your people, that you care for your people, that you'll fight for your people, that you'll go before your people. And so, Father, I pray that our response would be following you, being obedient to you, living our lives for you. Lord, today, as we sing, God, I pray that we would do so from a a place of thanksgiving, thankful that, that while we were still sinners, that you sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. That while we were in rebellion and running from you, that you loved us enough to lead us to repentance. And that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So Father, we ask you to move and work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing this song of response.